You know, it takes time. It takes time to shape a belief system. It takes time to form uh, what would I call an informed understanding in life about real issues. It's uh, sort of line upon line, uh, or like molding clay. It takes time to press a peel. Thoughtful, thoughtfulness, regularity. Opinions can come in, in an instant, right? Uh, maybe this is too crude or too base of an illustration, but in the last couple of days, we've some of us have experienced this. You're trying to get somewhere, and you're down the side road, and it's a mess, and and as you turn and you get halfway down the street, there's somebody stuck in the middle of it. And you realize you either got to help them get out so you can move on or you back out. And, and it's easy to walk up to the car and form an immediate opinion on what needs to happen to get them out, right? And I, I always know what's best. <laughs> and obviously they're the ones that are stuck, so I must have a greater understanding of the problem. But it's you can form an instant opinion and... and um, I've heard the phrase numerous times from others. Uh, I won't quote myself on this, but every opinions are kind of like armpits, right? Everybody's got a couple, and they usually stink. <laughs> I know that's kind of base and rude, but opinions are too easy to form in the moment, and oftentimes we don't have enough information to judge really what's happened or what needs to happen next. But it takes sometimes a lifetime to truly shape a belief system. And I think this morning is really very, very important to us as I want to help us form and shape part of our belief system. So I'm, I'm coming after you this morning and myself with some thoughts that should shape your thinking, your heart, your spirit, man, in such a way that it alters the way you live from today forward. Now, that might be asking a lot, that I could change your mind, and the Bible calls that metanoia. A repentance is a change of mind. It's a literal turning around of the way I think and coming to a new understanding that is in agreement with God. That's a big definition of the word metanoia for repentance. Repentance is really, in its basic understanding, is agreeing with God. God says this, if I think something different and I repent, I change my thinking to agree with His. This is the gradual formation of a belief system. Some of the things you believe today, would you agree with me, you didn't believe them ten years ago. But uh, maybe for some of us even further back, or maybe just a year ago. And so that's what I'm, I'm working at this morning. Um, you know, we're living in kind of a crazy world. And I had this picture in my mind just this morning that when the world seems out of control, and if you're into the news, you know it more than I do, because I only tune into news occasionally. And every time I do, it freaks me out. I think, man, I was only gone a week and it's worse. Or there's other crazy things happening. But this, I, get, I get this picture in my mind as those the earth or the world system is this giant whirlpool. And you see everything in it is just swirling in this huge circle, but it's moving down all the time. And you get this sense of destruction and the sense of, of hopelessness at times. 
But if we can stop long enough in, in the craziness to form a strong biblical belief system, it'll be more than a life ring thrown in to help you in the whirlpool moment. It'll be actually something that'll help you swim upstream and fight the current that is so prevalent in the world today. Whatever the current is, we're called to swim upstream. We cut against the grain. Uh, we, we believe in paradoxes. The paradoxes of Scripture are so weird to the world, such as lose your life in order to find it. Give in order to receive. They're paradoxes. They don't make sense to the average mind. But your mind belongs to God. And He wants to give you and I the mind of Christ. And so that means we're going to form some belief systems that may be contrary to what we used to believe. And I'm holding one person in the back of my mind right now, I probably won't disclose who that is, who on the subject we're on today, uh, years ago, did not believe what the Bible said. And openly would say that. As a Christian, so I just don't accept that. I think something different. And God's grace over time finally reached, uh, reached that heart. And to this, on this day would say, oh, I don't know how I ever believed that. I see what the Word of God says now, and I'm in total agreement with the way God sees it. And I'm sorry for the years that I lost believing something else. Another thing on building a belief system. Don't be fooled into this, into believing that your experiences make it so. See, my experiences are what I live life by and through. It's, it's how I have gone through life. I have my own experiences. So I tend to take my experiences and form them into a belief system and say, well, this is the way life works. But it's not always true, is it? The Bible is true. And I have to balance my experience by truth. If my experience is contrary to truth, then my experience is unfortunate because it will lead me to believe something against truth. So you have to combine truth and experience, not just experience. Thank you for that punctuation. <laughs> See, there's a debate among scholars in, the, in this day still. It's amazing. It's in the time of Jesus. It's in the scriptures. But they want to debate whether there is such a thing called truth. And you find that, what? <laughs> it's hard to believe. Um, one view is that truth doesn't exist. Everything is just a matter of interpretation. Whew. The founding fathers of our country didn't believe that. You know, they wrote words like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America was founded by men who believed that the right to life applied to everybody. And that that right was self-evidently given from a creator. Jesus was praying and said this to his father. Father, your word is truth. For me, the debate is settled. 
no matter how many of the intelligentsia want to get together and debate whether truth exists or not or whether life is just by interpretation, I go to the Word of God and I hear the Son of God saying, Your Word is truth. I live in a nation, we live in a nation where they said, On these truths, we're going to found and go forward. That's kind of fraying at the edges for me and has been for years that there's this unraveling of the foundations of our country. And this message isn't about our country. It's just about truth. It's about standing on something that doesn't move. Why, so many stories are running through my mind that that in the moment you need it to work, it will work. One that's in my mind right now is the the apartment building that was on fire. And the father is coming down the street to the apartments that he lives in, knowing that his, his son is the only one at home alone. And his son is blind. And he sees the smoke pouring out of the building. And he looks up, and it's certainly pouring from the window where he lives. And he's thinking about his blind son. And he sees his son, just as he arrives, he sees his son make his way to the window, you know, and he's gasping for air. And the father begins to coach. He gets his son to stand up on the windowsill outside. He coaches him all the way where he's standing outside with the smoke billowing out behind him. And, he's, and then he says to him, when I tell you to jump, jump. <laughs> Come on, stand with me on the windowsill. You're a couple of stories up. You can't see anything. Your back's on fire with smoke all around you. And you're going to jump at the command of who? Your father. Now that boy better be able to say, Father, your word is truth. (laughs) And I'm going to base my life on it right now. And when he said jump, he jumped to safety. I don't make these stories up, by the way. I actually read them. And then I used Snopes to verify them. Some of you haven't done that, by the way, I know. I send them back to you. (laughs) Today is called Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Back in 1973, on January the 22nd, Roe versus Wade opened a floodgate into this nation of making it legal for abortion. And I committed to the Lord that every year that that thing's still in place, we will at least take this Sunday and dedicate it to the sanctity of human life. Now, for some of you gals, it might just cringe in the moment, and those who would be listening later to the recording, don't hang up on me yet. Okay, I'm not going to attack you. I wouldn't do that. That would be absolutely unfair. But we must face truth. That's what I want us to see today. And so we honor Sanctity of Human Life Sunday until this whole thing is reversed and our nation no longer has a mindset to take take the lives of its unborn or its elderly or its infirm or its handicapped. John chapter 1, verse 4, in the very first part of the verse, says this. In Him was life. In Jesus was life. 
The Lord Jesus is the source and the sustainer of life. And one of the reasons we, this is why we work so hard to save lives. Haiti is on our mind. Let me read to you uh, on one report of many from, uh, this happens to be Bob and Donna Thiessen's nephew has just gone down to Haiti. And this last week, he flew in, in fact, the day either before or landed just before that 6.1 aftershock. So he was there for that in Port-au-Prince. And he's working with the YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And here's a report from uh, Terry Snow, the National Director for YWAM in Haiti. He said, yesterday our, our YWAMers, as they're called, in Port-au-Prince came upon people seeking help, and a four-month-old child was discovered pinned <coughs> under a building. Four months old. On the news this morning, you heard of, if you heard of man, 11 days. Uh, and not even hurt, really. Just dehydrated <coughs> under the rubble of his hotel. 11 days. That's, that's fantastic. So this four-month-old child was discovered pinned under the building. The rescue team from YWAM sprang into action. After some time, the child was removed from the rubble and rushed to, make a, to a makeshift hospital with a large cut on her head. Once there, everyone tried to find a responsible person. After asking where the baby's mother was, the people with them said, well, she's still under the building. So the YWAMers rushed back to hear people saying that, yes, she was under the building, but she was dead. The YWAMers began to dig for her, and to everybody's surprise, they found her alive. She was extremely dehydrated and needs hospital care, but she's going to recover, both mom and baby. And we, you know, we, we do the, oh, ooh, yeah. Why? Because we value life. See, our belief system tells us that life is valuable and that Jesus is the author and the sustainer of life. We're moved by these kinds of stories and we're in agreement with these kind of things because our, our, whether gradually or completely done today or still on the work, our belief system is coming into alignment with what the Bible says and we rejoice when that comes out victorious. And uh, in case some of you didn't get the message this week, and I, I, I'll just give it to you now. Jennifer Taylor, you know, Bob and Jolene's uh, daughter, who's had more surgeries than most people could count um, in her youth and is, what, now maybe 20? Is she 19 years old yet? 19 or 20? And uh, she was hospitalized last week with a cardiac arrest. And... She lives right near Loma Linda in an acute care center. And so then they moved her into the hospital. We're going to run enzyme tests and all that and said that basically everything was low and that she was in a 72-hour window of risk uh, from, as a heart attack patient, that, uh, you know, there's a possibility of something else, another episode in the next 72 hours that could take your life. And so everything was edgy. But we got it out to numerous people who began to pray. And why would we pray? Because we value life. We would pray not just because we're emotionally driven, even though we are that as well. We're in touch emotionally with these people. They're our friends and family members. And so we're moved by that. But yet we're moved further than emotion because, or just experience. We're moved by what we believe that God will intervene to save a life. And so they were going to do tests on her the next day. She was a little unstable but getting better. And they said, let's hold off one more day. The next day they took the test when she was further stable. And we got this report. It says, we have a, a praise report. Jennifer's test showed that God healed her from heart failure. We still don't know why she had a cardiac arrest, 
But with God in control, why worry? So we rejoice at news like this. Because we believe Jesus is the source and the sustainer of life. In Him was life. I'm just going to give you six simple one-liners and a scripture to go with them. One, Jesus is the creator of life. John 1.3 in the New International Version says, Through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. This is the Apostle John writing in about the year 85 A.D. Jesus is the creator of life. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. That's a pretty good summary. Jesus, the creator of life. There are those that like to take Proverbs chapter 8, I believe it is, where it talks about wisdom and uh, how wisdom was there in the beginning and I was there when God said and things were beginning to be made. And you take the word wisdom out and put the name Jesus in and it reads really cool. Because it talks about how uh, you can see how Jesus was there at the very beginning. Of course, he's eternal God as well. And here, the Father and here creating things. And the nice part about you and I, in Genesis, it says that we are made in the image of God. When he decided to create us, he made us like himself. Amen. That raises the value of who you are. Not only is Jesus the creator of life, but he's the author of life. Number two, Jesus, the author of life. In Acts chapter 3, when uh, you, know, you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and the great movement of God establishing His church and uh, all this preaching by Peter and then the lame man is healed in chapter 3 and the disciples are kind of brought on trial, aren't they? But they're their answer in the moment in chapter 3 and verse 15 is they're talking to the group that's assembled there looking at this lame man healed in Solomon's porch. Verse 12 of chapter 3 Acts says Peter saw it. He responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses." You killed, I think it says in the New International, the author of life. This is the indictment he brings against this group. Why are you looking at us like we could heal this guy? Jesus is the author of life, but you crucified him. And he brings this conviction on them, help them understand. He wasn't trying to condemn them. He's trying to bring them to a point of conviction where they could receive him. And Because in the next verse it says, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, Jesus, has given him, this man, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Jesus, the author of life, was here and healed this man. 
Number three, Jesus is the word of life. Five years after the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, he's writing the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in 90 A.D. And five years later, he's writing this in 1st John 1.1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the Word of Life, as he opens his epistles. Jesus, the Word of Life. Pastor Rob ministered last week and he brought up this word logos the word it was last week wasn't it yeah I mean with all that snow it feels like a month but you know <laughs> that's why the blinds are closed just in case it starts snowing won't you see it the word the logos of God more than just a, a written word it's the living word Jesus and John is talking about the essential Word of God. Jesus, the personal wisdom and power in union with the Father, who became his minister in creation, who became his co-laborer in government, and governing all of the universe, Jesus. This is what's contained in this simple word. He's the word of life. He is the governor. He's the, as, the, as we've said before, he's the author, the creator, the sustainer. And the source of life. He is the cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical. The word of life. And in order to procure our salvation, gave up his own life in our place, only to take it back again and become the firstborn among the dead. The first resurrected. It says, now follow me. When he says follow me, it's not just come follow me as a disciple, but follow me all the way to where you too overcome death because he is the creator, author, sustainer of life. And you're in him, therefore you have life. John wrote that later on. He said, he that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. He's the Word, the very life of God. Number four, Jesus, the bread of life. John 6.35, Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Uh, Jaden, I need to ask you about the words of the song we were singing uh, this morning. Is the one line supposed to say the bread of life? It is. Bread, Bread of life, right? Alive now. Yeah, I was hungry till I was given the bread of life. Now, our, our, by the way, the correction is this says breath of life in the song, which is incorrect. And as we're singing, I went, ooh, what a time to have a mistake. And most people won't even notice it went by, so I'm pointing it out. Uh, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was hungry till I was given the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Bread is, what's it called? The common phrase for bread. Dough. Dough. Okay. I'm looking for three words in a row. It's kind of like catchphrase. Here we go. Well, you guys don't play catchphrase. Sorry. The staff of life. 
Right? Have you ever heard this phrase? Am I out of? Am I living in antiquities? <laughs> Bread's the staff of life. Come on, you ever gone up three ninety five and stopped at Chats, the bakery? Come on, have you been to Chats in Bishop? Yeah. If you go through, it's on the left on the way up. It's on the right on the way down. Stop, get yourself a nice sandwich. The bakery, and they still have the sign up there. Bread, the staff of life, always has been. And they bake bread, okay? And you buy it, and I buy it. It's the staff of life. It's the mainstay. Jesus is telling us something. I am the bread of life. I'm beyond Chat's Bakery. I'm greater than, you know, the wilderness unleavened bread. I am the bread of life. I am the sustainer of your life. If you come to me, you'll never be hungry. They were thinking food thoughts. We often get lost in that parallel as well, but we're not talking about food. We're talking about real life. We're talking about what kept this guy alive for 11 days under his hotel rubble. Talking about what we rejoice over this four-month-old baby who comes out with this. And I know lots of people have died, and we can't rejoice over that at all. Amen. And this is where it needs to go, isn't it? The mercy of God coming in to bless. That's good to hear. Jesus, in John 10.10, 10, number 5, Jesus is the abundant life. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. doesn't come. Actually, he says, He cometh not, the King James, except for to kill, steal, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Other versions that you might have life to the full. My interpretation of the verse is that the enemy only shows up if there's opportunity to kill, steal, and destroy. If that opportunity isn't available, he's not even on the scene because he's only interested in killing, stealing, and destroying things. That's why when you look at a nation like Haiti and say, why is it so bad? Why is it the most impoverished country in the Western Hemisphere? You say, well, they've aligned themselves in the wrong place. And their lordship, being under the principalities and powers of, of the enemy, if you will, you know, voodooism and witchcraft and all the stuff that they've followed for so long, they've reaped the benefits of their god as a nation, stealing, killing, and destroying. And he's taken them to the task of being the most penniless nation in the, in the Western Hemisphere. They're poor. I mean, they sell dirt cakes to each other for a nickel. Somebody just make it out of bud, bake it on a little stove, sell it to the next guy. He eats it for a nickel. Now, that's a creative genius in a very bad condition. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundant to the full, overflowing. Never ending, more than enough, superabundance. And the final one, the sixth thing, is that Jesus actually is our life, our life. He is our life. Paul the Apostle comes to mind, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet the life that I now live is his life that's living through me, right? I'm born again. It's not the old me that's still alive. It's a new me. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. I'm walking, living testimony 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is supplying me life on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. He's the bread of life. He's, He's the sustainer of my life. He's the author, the creator of my life. In fact, let me summarize then, he is my life. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. When Christ, who is our life, it's amazing that it can be the source and the sustaining at the same time. It's not like you go and you get a piece of it and take it home and eat it and live by it and then go back and get another piece. You actually go to the source and it continues to flow in and through you on an, on an ongoing basis and you are the only one that can plug it up, right? We're the only ones that can foul up the flow or dirty the pond or stick our foot in the path or however you want to see it or dump rocks in the river. Something to impede its flow. We have the ability to let it flow. And if we just let it continue to flow, then it becomes the abundant, super overflowing life of John 10.10. Knowing these simple six things, creator of life, the author of life, the word of life, the bread of life, our abundant life, and our life. And And we, again, you know, I'm just pushing on your clay a little today. I want you to get a hold of the fact that life comes from Jesus. It's sustained by Him. If that's the case, then every life should be protected. Every life should be held with honor. This includes the unborn. And and the elderly. The infirm, as I mentioned before, the handicapped, no one is expendable. This is one of the things that's hanging up our whole Senate process until last week or so with the whole health care thing we're in right now as a nation. I mean, the nation is upside down over this issue, isn't it? A lot going on. And people taking sides and yicking and yakking and... Debating and this and that and, and you know, then you get a new election and the whole thing changes. And most people in, in kind of the conservative Christian Republican side are smiling. But one of the key issues throughout the formation of both House and Senate bills has been the issue of abortion. It's been a tough fight. I got so angry yesterday, I just searched, I ran a you know, Google search on Sanctity of Human Life, and the first thing that popped up was a very liberal article. I think it was in the L.A. Times. And I began, I thought, well, okay, I'll read what the other side has to say. I couldn't make it through two paragraphs, and all I could think of is, how do I write and tell this guy he's an idiot? <laughs> I mean, he's an intelligent idiot. This guy's too smart for himself. He's talked himself into a corner that is so contrary to the word of God that he thinks he's right. See, that's how the devil works. He believes somehow in the end he's going to win. He is such a liar and the father of every lie, the devil is. Not the guy on the LA Times. The devil is. Such a liar that he, I think he actually believes his own lies that in the end he's going to overcome God. 
even though he can read and it's here for him to read, he still believes the lie. And I'm reading this guy, and there are hundreds of those articles that just says, well, you know, choice. It's choice. A woman should have reproductive rights choice over her body. And, you know, I could get opinionated real quick on that too. But I'm not after the women today. I'm saying that the life, the little life, the preborn is a child in God's eyes. Let me give you some scriptures. I'm not going to give you a bunch of opinion. Exodus 21, this may be seem obscure to you a bit, but verses 22 and 23. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. God is speaking. We're not making these things up. Now, the English Standard Version reads this way. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. Her children. The scripture teaches that the woman who is giving birth prematurely because of this argument is carrying a child, according to the scripture. Not a fetus, not a tissue, a child. Job 10, 8, 12, your hands shaped me and made me. Job 8, uh, 10, 8 and 12. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn, turn me to dust again? Didn't you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. This summary by Job is saying that, God, you made me when I was in my mother's womb. You formed me there. I'm a person, not a thing. I'm more than a noun. (laughs) Didn't you take care of me there? God, he's saying, you kept me as an embryo. You kept me as a human being. You were creative in your care for me and your formation of who I am. Psalm 139 is a classic passage. Let me just take three verses or four from there. For you created my inmost being, 139, 13 through 16. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's you. That's me. That's every preborn child. Is a child. Not something else. On this passage, the Expositor's Bible Commentary 
says this, The Lord has formed the individual as a spiritual, parentheses, you created my inmost being. And in the Hebrew, the word is kidneys. Have you ever read the old King James? You created my kidneys. We tend to think of those little objects in our body, but to the Hebrew that meant the spiritual side of me, the unseen me, not the physical me, the spiritual me. In the Greek, I think the word is splankna. You know, some words you just can't forget. Splankna. I don't know why I would remember that word, but it talks about the, the me of me, the part you can't grab, the part you can't do surgery on. It's the spiritual me. It's the soul and spirit of who I am. The Lord has formed the individual as a spiritual and a physical being. Where it says, you knit me together, that's the physical side. The phrase, inmost being, is literally kidneys. Hebrew scholars tell us that this word, when used figuratively, refers to the innermost aspects of personality. God created aspects of David's personality. Not at birth, but before birth. Are we hearing that? God created aspects of David's personality. Not when he was born, but before he was born. That means some of the stuff you and I are carrying around we had before we came out. There's a bent about us. The proverb says, raise your child according to the way they should go. And in other words, it says, raise your children by their particular bent or the way that they lean. We've got a few leaning trees out here in our community, don't we? I got some broken limbs on our street hanging over power lines, which I anticipate being fixed <laughs> before they fall. But children are built with a bent. You know, we find it eventually, don't we? We look for it for a long time, uh, trying to figure out why do they do what they do? But they are built that way. And uh, we raise them according to that bent, to that pre-birth personality process. Now, factor in the fallen nature, unfortunately, and that bent can really get bent hurt and come out in some pretty bad conditions. David was a person before he was born in the eyes of God. All children are persons in the eyes of God before birth. (coughs) Jeremiah 1 is probably the classic, another classic for forming this belief system. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb... I knew you, he says to the prophet. As he's calling him to be a prophet, before I formed you. I mean, before you were anything, I was making you. Oh, now I know I can hear the question running through some of our minds. Why like this? (laughs) Then I have a few questions about why I have things I have or why I have a physical defect or why I'm a mental issue or why I'm structurally the way I am. I mean, couldn't you have thought about me a little thinner <laughs> or, or a different nose? Something of that, we tend to fall, fall to those thoughts. God is encouraging Jeremiah as he prepares him for ministry. Jeremiah, I don't think I can do this. I'm not enough. I can't. Cell leaders, come on, you go through it. I don't think I can lead anybody anymore. I'm not, I don't shepherd people right. I don't have what it takes. 
uh, or you're on the job as a Christian, you wonder if you should share your faith. Well, I don't know. I've been having on some And we excuse ourselves so far backwards, it's unfortunate. Because what we really should be saying is, well, the Bible says I'm an ambassador for Christ. The, the Bible says he's the source and sustainer of who I am. So evidently I'm a real somebody. And the Bible says that before I was even started being formed, God had already designed some of my personality and the way I was going to be. I should accept that he's made me and that I'm his and he likes me. He loves me. He loves me so much that he sent his only begotten son to die in my place so that I could be redeemed from sin and be his friend again. That's what reconciliation is, being made friends again with God. Hallelujah. These things bring us to a a formation of believing that we're more than things. We're people. We're human. We're children. We're pre-born people. And we should defend life. And here's a little Caleb in service already. The second week in a row, little guy. How old is Caleb now? Two and a half weeks. Wow. We were praying for Caleb after God knew about him. Then we got to know about him. And then we prayed for him as a person. And now he's here so we can touch him. He's real. You can't tell me that's a thing or a fetus or a tissue bag until it's born. Because the Bible says something different. Remember, let's go back to what Jesus said. Father, your word is truth. We're talking about having a foundation of truth that we can stand on in every condition. Let me give you one more, may I? Oh, good. Nobody said no. Luke, in Luke 1 and 2, you'd have to get the whole picture there, you know, the birth of Jesus and that. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, you know, Mary's pregnant, she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, right? When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, she told Mary, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This is John the Baptist, leaping for joy in his own little pool. And then later, these statements. This will be a sign to you. He's talking to the shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Luke is writing. I like Luke because he's a doctor and he's meticulous and he takes chart-type notes about everything. So the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to use the same Greek word, brephos, to refer to the unborn John the Baptist and the already born Jesus. He uses the same word. Now doctors are picky about the words they use when they write things down, aren't they? So he's using the word brephos for an unborn and a born child. Why? Because they're both kids. (laughs) It's that simple. He didn't say, the fetus leapt in in her womb. The bag inside of her flipped. You know, he he didn't modify it. He said, the baby, the person who was much a person there in the womb as Jesus was after he was born. He tells the shepherds, go find the baby. The baby, this hand, the baby, that hand, they're both the same. One just hasn't arrived for us to greet yet. 
But there's no differentiation in the scripture. Both are babies born or preborn. There's a story of a college professor in an ethics class. He presented this challenge to his students. A man has syphilis. His wife has tuberculosis. They have four children. One has died. The other three have terminal illnesses. The mother is pregnant again. What do you recommend? The class voted as though it was a democratic process anyway. Unfortunately, we've taken our democratic process and voted as well. But they democratically voted to terminate the pregnancy. To which the professor said, you've just killed Beethoven. Does anybody know who Ethel Waters is? Singer? No. Come on. Some of you guys are older than me. (laughs) Ethel Waters, she was a great... Maybe you weren't into music or into Jesus yet. She was a gospel singer. She was born to a 13-year-old who had been raped. This little statement, the world would have been robbed of the wonderful sacred music provided by each of these individuals, Beethoven and Ethel Waters, if life had not been valued even under difficult circumstances. Mother Teresa, (laughs) I heard the story of a guy says, you know, I have this one fear, is that I'm going to be in heaven, there's going to be a line waiting to talk to God. And I'm going to be in line behind Mother Teresa. And he's going to say to her, you know, you could have done better. (laughs) Yeah, get out of line. I'm going to the end of line. Anyway. So we lose sight. When we lose sight of a creator who has formed us with a purposeful life in mind, we may devalue life and even be willing to destroy it. The Roman Colosseum remains a monument to the degradation of a culture or society or the degradation a culture or society will experience when it does not recognize that humans are created to live. It has been often been noted that abortion and euthanasia are only symptoms of a greater problem. Our culture no longer recognizes the sacredness of human life. Mother Teresa said, Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching people to love, but to use violence to get what they want. That is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. That's Mother Teresa. I can't end without saying this because I know that it it pre-exists every service in which we talk about this or any time this is listened to, that there are those that have been through the experience of abortion and it's hard. Again, I've had people tell me, let me know when Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is because I won't come to church. Because I don't want to be anywhere where I'm stirred up and reminded again, which is unfortunate because where else can you find healing and forgiveness? 
Where else is there redemption and mercy? The world doesn't offer it. And you can't go back to the office where the procedure was performed and get them to reverse something. You have to run to Jesus. You have to run to the cross and say, Lord, I acknowledge in repentance that I sinned. And I want you to forgive me. And Jesus, like when he found, they got the woman in adultery, remember? They drug her in there and said, this woman was caught in the very act. And I'm thinking, where's the guy? You know. Anyway, they brought her in and they're all grabbing stones, getting ready for the throw. Jesus writes in the dirt. says, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. And starting at, the, I love this because it's there for us in writing. Starting from the oldest, the rocks began to drop. Starting from the oldest, see, the, the longer you live, your belief system can get a little more structured. And there was no question in the older guys' minds, have I ever sinned? <laughs> but the young guys, they could justify it. We want to have a good stoning today. You know, so, you know, we're into the softball pitch here, and, and uh, we want to get some action. So they would overlook their sins, but the older guys just dropped their rocks. Pretty soon, nobody's left. No accusers, by the way. There was a crowd still there. I don't know if you've read that passage, but there were a bunch of people there. Jesus was teaching a bunch of people when these guys walked in. And when they came in and brought her, they all dropped their rocks and left. But there was still a crowd watching this event. And Jesus comes up out of the dirt and says, where are your accusers? Because under the law, there had to be two people who would agree in accusing against you in order to condemn you. Had to be two. That's why they were trying to find two to condemn Jesus, right? So under the law, you had to have two people, two witnesses, who would testify against you in order to condemn you. Without two, you couldn't be condemned. With one, it was just an accusation. With two, it was, could be condemnation. could take your life. Where are your accusers? She said, they're all gone. And there was a crowd to draw from a few moments ago, but not even two of them are left. And Jesus' words, powerful words, from the very Son of God, said, neither do I condemn you. Ladies, we need to hear that. Our hearts need to grasp that. And Jesus would say to us, neither do I condemn you. He did say to her, go and sin no more. There's a new life to be lived. I'm the author. I'm the source. I'm the sustainer of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the author. I'm the creator. I'm all these things for you. I don't condemn you. Go and don't live like that anymore. Let me flow into your life and bring you abundant life now. Let's go another direction. We need to hear the truth. The truth is Jesus came to forgive us, set us free from some of those things that still hang on to us. And that the enemy would love to keep laying over us like a burden that we can never escape. But there's healing and there's forgiveness and there's mercy in the person of Jesus. One story, and we're out here. I'm going to wipe you out now. Ready? I'm coming after you right here. This is a doctor writing. Probably a guy kind of like Luke. Except for I think Dr. Luke would have been appalled by the idea of an abortion. But he's writing, he says, Several years ago, a fragile young woman came to my doctor's office expecting her first baby. One month before she was due, the baby was in a breech position. 
And the death rate of breech babies is high because of the difficulty in delivering the aftercoming head and the imperative need of delivering it quickly after the body is born. During the delivery, I waited as patiently as I could for the natural forces of expulsion to thoroughly dilate the firm maternal structures. At last, the time had come, and I gently drew down one little foot. I grasped the other, but it wouldn't come beside the first. To my consternation, I saw the other little foot would never be beside the first one. The entire thigh from the hip to the knee was missing. I knew as a doctor what a dreadful effect this would have upon the unstable nervous system of the mother. The family would almost certainly impoverish itself in taking the child to every famous orthopedist in the world. I saw this little girl sitting sadly by herself while the other girls danced and ran in play. I could slow my hand. I could delay those few short moments. No one in this world would ever know. The mother, after the first shock of grief, would be glad she had lost a child so handicapped. The little pink foot on the good side bobbed out from its protecting towel and pressed firmly against my slowly moving hand, into whose keeping the safety of the mother and baby had been entrusted. I couldn't do it. I delivered the baby with her pitiful little leg. Every foreboding came true. The mother was in the hospital several months. She looked like a a wraith of her former self. And as the years went on, I blamed myself bitterly for not having had the strength to yield to my temptation. Our hospital stages an elaborate Christmas party each year for the staff. This past year, three lovely young musicians on the stage played softly in unison with the organ. I was especially fascinated by the young harpist. She played extraordinarily well, as if she loved it. Her slender fingers flicked across the strings, and her face was upturned as if the world that moment were a wonderful and holy place. When the short program was over, there came running down the aisle a woman I didn't know. Oh, you saw her, she cried. You must have recognized your baby. That was my daughter who played the the harp, the little girl who was born with only one good leg 17 years ago. We tried everything at first, but now she has a whole artificial leg on that side. Best of all, through all those years, she learned to use her hands so wonderfully. She's going to be one of the world's greatest harpists. She's my whole life, and now she is so happy, and here she is. The sweet young girl had quietly approached us, her eyes glowing. Impulsively, I took the child in my arms. Across her warm young shoulder, I saw the creeping clock of the delivery room 17 years before. I lived again those awful moments when her life was in my hand. And as the last strains of Silent Night faded, I found comfort that I'd waited for so long. I know those are hard stories, but I love to do this to you. (laughs) Because I'm trying to touch a belief system this morning. I'm trying to keep you and I from 
washing down the whirlpool of the world structure that says something different than truth. I want you to have a strong foundation. I want you to honor life in all of its forms, and it's not always easy. I can tell you that when I get out of touch with life, I just take a trip to the hospital. I go wander the halls of Loma Linda or St. B's or somewhere, pop into a few rooms, and all of a sudden life takes on a new perspective again. I say, life is valuable, and we are fighting on every hand to save it. And yet, as a country, we are maintaining and fostering an attitude that does not sustain life. We must be very, very careful. And if you are in a place of influence, whether it be of one, whether it be of your own children, whether it be of your neighborhood, or God raises you to a place of prominence in ministry or government or political structures, in that place of influence, let your belief system work for the good of the kingdom of God and especially for those who are defenseless. Father, this morning I'm grateful that we were able to gather. You got us here safely, and I pray that you will take us home safely as well. Let your favor rest upon us. Holy Spirit, apply your hands to us today. Form us. Shape our belief structures. Give us an understanding that helps us live life abundantly. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the grace you provide for us will flow freely upon the hearts and the spirits of those men and women who have been through an abortion situation. God, that your grace will embrace them today. That you will pull them close to your chest and speak words of mercy and redemption to them and free them from any bondage that is undue. In Jesus' name, amen.